0: Unless you want to stand for the whole sermon. I don't think you do. Because <laughs> I think I have like a disorder. I just was thinking about this yesterday. Um, I'm typically really kind of a quiet person and pretty introspective and uh, shy. But when I do get to talk and I have an audience, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't have a, I don't seem to have a problem not having enough to say. Well, our text this morning is um, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And you can find the text, of course, as we mentioned earlier, in your uh, bulletins. And uh, it's also in your pew Bible, of course, if you want to use that. That's the New King James Version, a different version, but still the same text. And that's found on page, starting on page 831. And if you would... uh, Stand momentarily, because I would like to read the scripture text. Sorry, I sat you down a little bit too early. If you are able. So here is our text for this morning. This is God's holy and inspired word, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. You may be seated. This time it's for real. Will you please pray once more with me? Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wondrous things out of your word and that we might be changed by them in accordance with your will. Almighty God, cleanse us by your Spirit's power that we may more perfectly love you and walk in your ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior. Amen. Well, this morning I'm planning to finish our three-part, 13-month series on the Old Testament book of Haggai. Uh, and because this series has been uh, spread all- over such a long period of time, um, I thought it'd be good to begin with a quick review of where we've been so far. Haggai's first two messages were given in August and September of 520 B.C. And those words are recorded in chapter 1 of the book. If you just glance at the section headings in your Bibles, you can get a a sort of a general idea of the subjects that we've we've covered. For chapter 1, my Bible has the heading, The Command to Rebuild the Temple. And that's over verses 1 through 11. And then it has, The People Obey the Lord, as the heading for verses 12 through 15. Now, if you were with us way back in January of last year, you might recall that for chapter two, we looked at answering the question, "What time is it?" The answers that I suggested were that it is time to hear the Lord of hosts, and it is time to fear the Lord of hosts. This is how we work to tear down materialism in our lives and self-sufficiency. Hearing and fearing the Lord is how we reorder our priorities in, in a way that they line up with God's will. It's how we seek to live a life of repentance from sin. It's how we seek first the kingdom of God. There was a quote from a commentator that helps kind of summarize the message of Haggai chapter 1. When God has spoken, apathy is evidence of practical atheism. The people in Haggai's day feared the Lord in the sense that they had been startled wide awake by the voice of God. Haggai's third message was given in October of 520 B.C., and it's found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The sermon on that passage was also in October, but it was October of 2022 A.D., not 520 B.C. And the heading for that passage in my Bible is, The Coming Glory of the Temple. The big idea for that sermon, uh, the sermon on that passage, was, The Glory Days Are Gone... But we must get to work anyway building the kingdom of God because God was, has been, and is still with us and greater glory has come and is coming. We considered what God might be calling us to in terms of re-energizing our zeal for the health of his church and the growth of his kingdom and we we realized that we can't know the future for our own congregation but by the power of God working in our lives, We can be faithful, faithful to the tasks of of love for God and neighbor and church family that he has placed before us. And that brings us to today's message. Haggai's fourth and fifth messages were both given on uh, December 18th, 520 BC, and we can find those in the passage that we just read a few minutes ago, verses 10 through 23 of chapter 2. As a little clue to where we're heading this morning, the section headings in my Bible for this passage are, Blessings for a Defiled People, and Zerubbabel Chosen as a Signet. In this passage, we'll find some similarities with Haggai's previous prophecies, and especially with uh, the first nine verses of chapter two. In fact, there is a theme that that underlies, that runs throughout Haggai's prophecies, prophecies, and that theme is, Consider your ways. So this morning as we focus our attention on chapter 2, 20, uh, 10 through 23, I would like to suggest that here Haggai calls us to consider our ways by hearing God's message of the law in verses 10 through 14, grace in verses 15 through 19, and grace upon grace in verses 20 through 23. So the first section, verses 10 through 14, the law. Consider your ways concerning the law. The principle here is the law brings a curse of uncleanness, and you already have your cheat sheet, so you already knew that. Haggai received these messages from the Lord on the third month anniversary since this work of of renewal had begun. You might remember that about 50,000 people returned back to Judah after decades of exile in Babylon. When they first arrived back home in Judah... They started to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, but uh, due to opposition and materialism and apathy, by the time of Haggai's prophecies, the work had been abandoned for almost 20 years, about 18 years. This time in December was also the time for them to sow seed, to plant their crops. In this section, God has a couple of questions for Haggai to ask the priests. The first question is in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Now, I I don't completely understand this, but regarding this fold of the garment that's mentioned, apparently a person could somehow pull up part of their, like, outer layer of of clothing through the inner layer of clothing— and uh, make like a little flap that would hang down, like a pocket that would hang on the outside of their clothes, uh, a little pouch or a pocket that would sag down. And so you can imagine as the people worked on rebuilding the temple, they may possibly have carried small tools or other building materials in these little flaps, these pouches. And when it was time to sow seed in their fields, they might have carried the seed in these pockets as they walked along and scattered the seed. In verse 12, the question for the priest has to do with a person carrying some consecrated meat in one of these folds, these little pouches. So the meat was consecrated for use in the temple worship, and then someone takes that piece of meat and puts it in their pocket. The question then is, if that person touches some other food with their garment, does that other food become consecrated? And the answer is no. According to Leviticus chapter six, the sin offering, this meat, was holy, and whatever it touched also became holy. So it was assumed that holiness would be transferred from a consecrated object, in case, this case, that, that chunk of meat, to a person or other object, in this case, the garment, the clothing. But Haggai is asking the priest whether or not holiness may be transferred from the second consecrated object, the clothing. to a third third item, which would be some other piece of food. And the priests say, no, holiness does not pass to other things that way. The second question for the priests has to do with someone who is unclean from contact with a dead body. Numbers chapter 19 says, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So the priests respond to this question by saying that if someone who is unclean from contact with a dead body touches any food item, that food becomes unclean. In verse 14, Haggai explains how the answers to these questions apply to the people of Judah. He says, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean there are some different and kind of overlapping ways to um, to, to, to consider this the people are defiled because they permit this this ruinous corpse the temple the unfinished temple is like a ruinous corpse so they permit that to remain in their midst a decaying temple signifies decaying relationship and it brings defilement rather than holiness And not only will this rebuilt temple not compare with the glory of Solomon's original temple, but all their work is infected by sin. Another way, or another sort of overlapping thought here is that uh, activities, even religious ones like rebuilding the temple, would not clean up sin. Repentance and obedience were still needed and continually needed because unclean people Make unclean things. Holiness cannot be transferred, but uncleanness can. Holiness will not rub off on others, but contamination will. So the point here is to force reflection upon the uncleanness of the people before their holy Lord. So what's the main point for us? We don't make anything holy either. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. In fact, our very best day is like a soiled diaper. Living on our own, outside of the saving grace of God's love and forgiveness, that can only be found in Jesus Christ, trying to be our own Savior by giving our very best in terms of community service, even service to the church trying to be our absolute best in terms of personal morality just being an all-around decent person is an offering that is not accepted by God it is unclean many years ago uh, we had a dog for a short time and the last straw the reason we eventually found the dog a new home was because she started bringing um, the work she had done out in the backyard into the house in her mouth and laying it on a pile on the floor in our living room, our family room, as if she were offering us some great gift, some present. She was so proud. We weren't very proud of her. Well, that's a picture of our religious activity outside of saving faith in the Lord Jesus. It's as if we're trying to offer God a stinky diaper that we are so proud of. But the truth is, we do what is detestable and false. It is not in our power to make anything clean, to make anything holy. That's the message here, the message message of the law, the lesson of the Ten Commandments. That's the lesson of Jesus' command that we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. We, We don't do it. We can't do it. We fail. There's nothing we get our filthy little paws on that doesn't get tainted by our contact with it. The law tells us we're unclean, unholy, defiled. The law brings the curse of uncleanness. So do we know? Do you know that you are unclean before a holy God? You might remember from Pete's sermon last week that the text ended with uh, Jesus' words in, Matthew, in, in, chapter, in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do we know? Do you know that you're sick, or do you think you're well? Last week also, we sang a hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Verses 3 and 4 of that hymn bear repeating. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come, you weary, heavy-laden, lost, and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. The law brings a curse of uncleanness. The law teaches that this uncleanness needs to be cleansed and purified. But the scriptures also tell us that it is the Lord alone who can forgive sin. So in the next section, God, God hints at just that as he begins to unwrap the message of his amazing grace and of his blessings on defiled people. let takes us to our second section, grace, verses 15 through 19. The principle here is God's grace brings the hope of future blessing. Here, Haggai refers back to chapter 1, And God reminds the people how things have been going and why they've been going that way. Back in chapter 1, we read, "...now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes." Thus says the Lord of Hosts, Consider your ways. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of Hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil. And what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Returning to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the people are called again to consider their ways. To give careful thought to the recent trajectory of their lives. To keep an eye on past experience while yet looking forward to the new thing, the work of grace that God is presently beginning Consider in verse 15 and then later in verse 18 is literally set your hearts. In verse 16, we see that the people had set their hearts. They had placed their hearts and turned their attention, but they had placed their hearts and turned their attention on their crops and their supply of wine. They had been considering and setting their hearts, but it was on their crops and their material circumstances. It wasn't working, their crops were not producing as they had hoped. The problem was that before God brought them this season of repentance through Haggai, they had not turned, they had not considered, they had not set their hearts or come to God. So how had they fared? Not very well. They were unclean, and the poor yield of their crops was meant to get their attention. Their circumstances should have gotten their attention because these were the very circumstances that God had promised through Moses hundreds of years earlier that they would find themselves in as a result of their disobedience. In verse 17, God says, I struck you. God smote smote them with blasting wind. He struck them in all the products of their toil. He brought blight, mildew, and hail. God the Father evaporated their gain. God is no Santa Claus. And this maybe seems, to, seems a bit harsh to some people, but it was actually God's love that did all of this. This was all part of God's fatherly discipline of his covenant people. The purpose was restorative, that they might know him as their God and that they might act like his people were supposed to act, that they might live like his people were supposed to live. God is providentially at work in each of our lives, too. Reflection on events in the light of God's word is indispensable if God's people are to know the meaning of his providential ordering of their everyday affairs. So we, too, must consider our ways and we must grapple with our circumstances and ask ourselves, in the light of God's word, what he might be showing us and teaching us in his providence through our circumstances. We must give attention to areas in our lives where we are in need of repentance, of turning away from sin. And as we seek reconciliation with the Lord, we will find him ready and willing to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Before their obedient response to God's message through Haggai, the people of Judah had not turned to God. Verse 17 says, You did not come back to me, or we didn't have anything in common. You did not return to me. Literally, there is not you to me, or we're not seeing eye to eye or face to face. God was telling them, I'm looking at you, I'm watching over you, taking care of you, but you've turned your back toward me. You've gone your own way. You are a prodigal people, exiling yourselves from your loving, compassionate, and faithful Father. May God's Spirit so move in our lives that we never become self-exiled from the Father due to our own stubbornness, apathy, pride, vanity, or disobedience, or idolatry. Well, so far we've had a whole lot of law, but grace is on its way. God had given the people his message through the prophet Haggai, and he was doing a work in their hearts, so they were responding by fearing the Lord, obeying him, and reordering their priorities, rebuilding the temple, and seeking his kingdom first. But things weren't looking so good just yet. You take a look at verse 19 it says is the seed yet in the barn indeed the vine the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing as they considered and set their hearts on what was happening in their lives they recognized that their work was unclean it was unclean and they knew it our work is unclean and if we're honest with ourselves and know ourselves at all we know it too The people had planted their crops, but there was no sign of fruit, at least not yet. But at the very end of verse 19, we find a promise of God's blessing is on the horizon. God says, I will bless you. So now the people of Judah are called to consider what will come to pass from this day onward. The people had done the work of relaying the foundation, The people had done the work of sowing their seed. Their unclean hands had completed these tasks. But how would things turn out? Now what would happen? They didn't know. Is the seed yet in the barn? No. The seed, or the barns, probably uh, dry cisterns that were in the ground. They're covered over with a thick layer of earth. These storage areas, they they were empty. The seed has all been planted. The results of their work would not be known for a few more months when it was time for the harvest. But God gave them this promise, I will bless you. The paraphrase in the Living Bible for verses 18 and 19 is is pretty good. It says, But now note this, from today, this 24th day of the month, as the foundation of the Lord's temple is finished, And from this day onward, I will bless you. Notice, I am giving you this promise now before you have even begun to rebuild the temple structure and before you have harvested your grain and before the grapes, the figs, the pomegranates and olives have produced their next crops. From this day, I will bless you. Well, we know from what we've been looking at so far this morning that whatever the people of Judah did, whatever they offered, was defiled. So they have done nothing to earn this promise. Yes, they have feared the Lord and obeyed God's message to them through the prophet, but that was only because the Lord was at work and had stirred up their hearts in the first place. The blessing that was promised was solely on the basis of God's mercy and grace, on the basis of his good pleasure, his love for his people and his joy in blessing them. This was a work of unexpected, undeserved, and unearned grace. God said, I will touch you. I will make you clean. I will bless you. I will bless the work of your hands and your crops and in rebuilding the temple, turning your hearts back to me. And God blessed the people in Haggai's day with everything they needed for rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the temple was a big deal. The subject is given a lot of attention in the scriptures. Building the kingdom of God, being part of and building up the church is a big deal too, as we are all called to be disciples and to make disciples. So may God similarly establish the work of our hands, and may we rest content and confident that he will provide all needful things for our true good too. God's grace brings the hope of future blessing. Our assurance of this, our our confidence in this message comes from the last section, God's second message to Haggai on December 18th of that year, where we find a message of grace upon grace. Verse 19 tells us that God will bless his people. In verses 20 through 23, God tells us how he will ultimately bless them. So our last section, Grace Upon Grace, verses 20 through 23. And the principle here is Jesus Christ is our blessing of hope now and forever. Here we find that the Lord of all comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This closing passage telescopes way out to the future to the birth of Christ, to his life, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection, and then to the last day. And though the message here is addressed to Zerubbabel individually, it's truly a message for all people. The prophecy begins with God telling Zerubbabel that he is about to shake the heavens and the earth. It says that God is about to do this in a little while, very soon, and yet for us, About 2,500 years have passed, but God is giving us time. He's giving us time because he is patient and desires our repentance. We read that in our unison scripture reading this morning. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Well, we considered this, um, this cosmic shakedown, this shaking of the heavens and the earth back in October when we looked at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And about 500 years after Haggai, the Lord Jesus also prophesied this shaking. In Matthew 24, we, we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the earth will be shaken. Luke 21, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Of course, back when I first started preparing for this message, I could not have known that there was going to be a major earthquake in Turkey and Syria this past Monday. And we grieve for the devastation and the loss of life that those people are enduring. And as we pray that somehow, yet, miraculously, there will still be survivors who are found, we pray for the thousands upon thousands who are mourning, facing such an incredibly bleak and distressing time. I think it's also appropriate for us to pray that God would use this terrible shaking of the earth to communicate the urgency of people's need, of our need to humble ourselves before the Lord of hosts, to turn away from our sin, and to seek forgiveness through Jesus, his Son. Verse 22 mentions that this shaking of the heavens and the earth will include the overthrow of chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. This is an allusion to the Exodus, to the deliverance from Egypt, to the crossing of the Red Sea, to the song of Moses that we find in Exodus 14 and 15. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now we take a look at verse 23 in Haggai 2. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. On that day, and this verse refers to a day long after Zerubbabel was gone. Notice also that these prophecies and promises to Haggai are grounded in the authoritative declaration of the Lord. If you take a look there, the phrase, declares the Lord, happens three times in just this one verse. The Lord Almighty, the all-powerful King of Israel, the ruler over the entire universe who stands ready to intervene for his people at any moment, he is the one making these promises. And we may be confident that the declaration of the Lord Almighty will happen. With God's true word as the lamp for our feet and the light for our path, we have excellent reason for the hope that is in us. Now, technically, Zerubbabel was not actually Shealtiel's son, but the son of King Jehoiachin's third son, You can check this out in 1 Chronicles 13. And this gets a little confusing, but bear with me. King Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was a wicked king who had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was king when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem. Jehoiachin had been rejected by God as king of Judah. He had been deposed and exiled to Babylon. Now here's the sort of confusing part. As far as Zerubbabel's immediate family goes, we don't know exactly what happened. It could be that Padaiah, Zerubbabel's dad, his father, died, and then Shealtiel, who was his uncle, Zerubbabel's uncle, um, maybe uh, adopted Zerubbabel. Or maybe Shealtiel died before Zerubbabel was ever born, and his younger brother, Padiah, married his widow through the practice of, of Leveret marriage. And then maybe Zerubbabel was born to Shealtiel's widow through Padiah, but called by Shealtiel's name. That part is not in the answer key in your notes. In the vast scheme of things, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that much, but the bottom line here is that for whatever reasons, Zerubbabel is considered by the biblical writers to be the legal and genealogical son of Shealtiel. And that's important. The amazing thing here is that as the biblical record unfolds, and as this prophecy in verse 23 comes true, we discover that Zerubbabel was not only descended from King David, but also an ancestor of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of our Lord. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one, the first verse says, "This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David." And then verse six, David was the father of or, Jesse was the father of King David. Then verse eleven, Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin, that was the evil grandpa, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, jumping down to verse 16 in Matthew 1, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. God calls Zerubbabel my servant. This is a title that's used especially of King David. Psalm 89 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This is also a a description of of an ideal Davidic king. Exodus 34 says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord and I have spoken. God also tells Zerubbabel that he will make him like the signet ring or a seal. A signet ring was worn by a king and it provided evidence of royal authority and ownership. Like a king sealing legal documents with his ring, the Lord will set his authentic impression upon the world through his royal representative. Jehoiachin had been rejected as the Lord's signet ring. But his grandson, Zerubbabel, was placed as God's signet ring. Finally, God tells Zerubbabel, I have chosen you. Zerubbabel was especially chosen by God, his servant and his chosen one. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, on him. He will bring justice to the nations. So the last words of Haggai tell us that the Lord of hosts chose Zerubbabel, especially as a sign who would lead us and point us to the Messiah. Zerubbabel would not be king, but the true seed of David who rules forever on the throne, of whom all the kings of Judah were but a type, is Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel is the faithful descendant of David who leads the people in restoring the temple. In Zerubbabel, the the chosen status of the Davidic line was restored. He was one of the ancestors of Christ, and he foreshadowed Jesus' faithful zeal to build God's house. And God's promise to bless his people, and the whole world through the house of David still stands. Now, as you finish reading Haggai, you might seem like it just kind of stops at verse 23 and doesn't, doesn't give us the rest of the story. How did their crops turn out? Was the temple finished? The book doesn't tell us. The answer is yes, but the book itself doesn't tell us. And yet, verse 23 truly is the rest of the story because God was going to turn the world upside down and bring the long-desired Messiah. And 500 years later, about... About 500 years later, Jesus himself would walk in those temple courts. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we are truly blessed. For like Zerubbabel, we are chosen by God too. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Through the mysterious and wonderful workings of the Holy Trinity, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, We have received grace upon grace. Jesus Christ is our hope, our blessing of hope now and forever. The ladies sang about this in the anthem earlier this morning, God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you are outside of this eternal life, I pray that you would repent and believe the good news. Trust in Jesus today and enter into the kingdom of God knowing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And remember that warning from that hymn, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. For those of us who, by the grace of God, know the good news of Jesus' saving power in our lives, may we overflow with gratitude and praise to god for his indescribable gift because the most important question has been answered for us we might not know where to work or go to college we might not know what to study in college or what work to train for we might not be able to find a good job we might we might face financial struggles we might not know what house to buy or how to pay for the house we're in we might be stressed out. We might have health issues and be lonely, sad, or depressed. Our relationships with family or fa- friends or family members might be strained or broken. We might be grieving the loss of a friend, a spouse, even a child. But God is still with us. If you are a believer, you have the most needful thing provided for. Your sins are forgiven. You have been reconciled to God. In the Lord Jesus, you have received grace upon grace. We haven't. We haven't had. We don't have. We can't have perfect zeal for the things of God. But Jesus did. And Jesus does. And he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Even through our suffering, we can trust in him and know that a great good is coming that's too big for this world to hold. For on that day, we too will sing the song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And we will sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. And the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of your word, the message of Haggai. As we consider our ways We realize that we are unclean before you. That you are holy and we are not. And that we need you to rescue us. Thank you for for providing that rescue. For providing grace upon grace in the life, death, and resurrection of your son. We ask that you would continue to, to work mercifully and mightily in our lives. Fill us with love for you and for your people and give us courage and zeal for building up your church for being disciples and being disciple makers we pray in jesus holy name amen